0: October 21st, 2018, Australian toy accordingly 24, is found murdered and buried in sand dunes on an idyllic beach outside of Cairns in far north Queensland. Her suspected murderer quit his job the same day, left his family behind and fled to India. Almost four years on, he remains there as a free man despite extradition proceedings. Toya accordingly’s case may be at a standstill but her story deserves to be told in the hopes that she receives the justice she deserves. Join me as I discuss Toya and the stories of other women in Australia who have been murdered at the hands of a stranger. Primary sources for this episode include Nine News, The Age, The Conversation, The Daily Mail, News.com.au, The Brisbane Times, The Cairns Post, and Mamma Mia. Hi, guys. Welcome back to episode 136 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. Hope that you're all doing well this weekend. Now, I'm going to get straight into it because I've got a fair bit to get through and this will probably just be one part. But before I do, I want to thank Kelsey, listener Kelsey, for your contribution to the podcast um, through PayPal. So thank you so much. Now, this episode is a Patreon location request for patron Simon. Simon is originally from the UK, but he lives in Brisbane, which is in the state we're going to for this episode today, or... Albeit he's in the southern part, and we're going to the northern part of Queensland. He has lived out here for around 20 years. Simon told me that he chose India as his location for his episode, as he's travelled extensively there, and he's actually been to the city or town of Manali, where Adet Hofden from episode 100 was last seen. He went there around two years after she did, and he said what I've heard from a lot of people, which I talked about on that episode, he said it had, quote, a definite edge to the place that I've never forgotten, unquote. Now, I chose a case for Simon that is quite unique from any other case that we've done before. It's the killing of of an Australian in Australia, but It is a fugitive killer who we, the alleged killer is, we know where they are. And all the pieces have kind of been put together. We're just waiting on red tape and bureaucracy, sadly. But it starts in Cairns in the state that, as I said, Simon lives in. So we're heading to two countries. We're first off going to be on the isolated picture-perfect beaches of northeastern Australia, and then we'll go to the crowded streets of India um, where this person at this point in time could be anywhere. And I really felt compelled to do this episode uh, because I felt that Toya didn't get a whole lot of attention at the time that she was killed, and I I still feel that way. I've always felt that way about her case. Now, when you are a patron, I put up posts in Patreon, obviously, and I always put up a episode picture hint, a picture of the place that we're going to for the next episode and people can guess. And this week, patron Adam guessed the location, right? Most people thought that the beach um, where Toya was killed in Cairns was in South America somewhere. It's this idyllic beach. It's amazing uh, he got the location right. He said Far North Queensland. He got the case wrong. He thought it was the case of the two scuba divers that were left behind. Now I think that's, they were the Lonigans. Now I do have them on my list to do at some point, but, um, I kind of haven't prioritised it because so many other podcasts have done that case and I don't really feel like I can add a whole lot to it, but it's there and we'll get to it at some point. I always, um, as I said, felt Toya got short shift when it came to the media here. It felt like for a couple of days after she was murdered, she got front page news and then just it immediately dropped off. And I can't remember what was going on at the time, but I feel like there was a lot from memory that was going on. And as I start this week's episode and I talk about a few cases uh, in the lead up to Toya's death, you'll kind of understand why Australians have quite a lot of... um, through no fault of their own, it's just a constant onslaught of the media. Um, the amount of violence against women in this country is really out of control and um, stranger, on stra- uh, stranger on stranger stranger on murders. And I feel that people have quite a lot of, um, they block out a lot of stuff now, dates that they happen, things like that. And Honestly, these people's names are emblazoned in my mind and it's. I was just thinking when I was putting together the start of this episode where I'm going to go through a few cases of women who have been killed by strangers in Australia before I get into Toya's case. How sad it is that I I know their names and I don't have to look up anything about them other than the dates that it happened and that's because it's kind of all a bit of a wash for me because there's just so many cases. But this case of Toy Accordingly is ongoing. It has news as of last month. Um, Public pressure will help this case. That is what the family needs right now, especially now that red tape, which is ridiculous, is holding up things. Um, And people on both sides of India and Australia, Australia's really done their part and now it's time for India to do their part and to return this person who is the alleged perpetrator in this case and I will continue to say alleged and suspected until they uh, go to trial because people are innocent until proven guilty um, and I don't pile on for people which you've noticed um, but in this case it seems that most of the pieces of the puzzle have been put together. We know who did this allegedly, we know what happened um, and India needs to be pressured to return this man or this monster to Australia so that he can be Um, he can face our courts, face our system, which at times is extremely lax. Um, And for this young woman who did nothing wrong to face, to get some resolution for her family and for her to get justice. I get very angry when Australians go to other countries, which I've talked about before, and commit crimes, whether it's drug trafficking, just being crazy, drunken louts. But I get Doubly angry when someone comes to my country and kills one of my fellow country people, whether it's a man or a woman, and that has happened um, before. And I also get angry when a woman or a man comes to this country to better their life and they are killed by a local. It makes me ashamed to be an Australian, even though I did nothing wrong. And I think a lot of a lot of Australians feel that way now. For legal reasons, as this case is ongoing. All personal opinions in this episode are speculation and all suspects or persons of interest are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law in Australia. So let's get into this week's episode. The issue of violence against women in Australia is a constant. I touched on it from a domestic violence lens on the Tanya Ebert episode that we did. She was the young German woman who... Is still missing out there somewhere in the remotest part of South Australia. Um, Sometimes it feels exhausting, just the sheer number. And at one point between around 2012 and 2019, it just felt out of control here. And I don't know what the answer is. I do have some personal opinions on what the cause is. Um, Many of it revolve, much of it revolves around drugs, drugs. And just attitudes towards women in general in this country, which go back generations. Australia this week was given the title of the world's meth capital. um, And I think that contributes to it quite a lot. And even just in my day to day, I see a lot of people a lot more unhinged, a lot more tense, having a lot more issues. And I don't think the last two years in Australia have helped that at all. One thing I know for sure, though, is that each murder is met with a different public reaction, and most people can attest to that. Some women get candlelit vigils um, when they're killed by their partners or strangers, which I'll be talking about now, um, and marches and public outcry, and some get complete silence and no one has ever heard their name. Some people think that this is a racial component. Some people think that it's a classist component. So I thought I wanted to go through some of the cases of women who have been killed by strangers. And as I put their names down, they just came to me organically because I'm very interested in true crime. Obviously, a lot of these things happen in my city, Melbourne, so I think most Melburnians um, just know these women's names, Um when it happens, you know, it's huge. And some of these cases were huge. Statistically, most women here are murdered by their partners or males connected to them, but sometimes it is by a stranger. And so I wanted to start Toya's episode, who was killed allegedly by a stranger, and it seems that way, with some other names of both Australian women born and raised here, as well as foreigners living here who have been killed in my country, many of them in Melbourne, seemingly Melbourne seems to have a massive issue, which people don't really know what the answer to that is either. But I don't think the drug problem in Melbourne is helping at all, um, or just the general mood in the city in general. Um, and I feel ashamed, as I said, when someone comes to this country as a foreigner, to better their life in what is known as the lucky country. And they meet this end, especially when it's at the hands um, of an Australian. It makes me so angry. And these monsters do not represent us. The average Aussie will give you the shirt off their back. They'll yak your ear off for hours. They'll help you. They want to know all about you. Um, and they're just not these people. And I have, feel no connection to these people at all. And I think most people don't. I also feel ashamed um, that Australian women are not able to defend themselves. I've had an issue with this for a very long time. Um, obviously, we cannot carry weapons. Uh, we do not have guns here. And as much as it's allowed in other countries, uh, we are not allowed to carry mace um, at all, or capsicum spray, as it's known here, even in like a little bottle like they can in the United States. Um, In spite of all of these cases I'm going to talk about, no changes have been made um, to allow for women to do that. We're not even able to use specific devices that have been designed that are sold in other countries, which are basically like hard plastic knuckle dusters, so they're not classic as weapons. There's one called a tiger lady that's available in the USA. Even those things are outlawed for us. Uh, so when women, when I get into these cases, I just want you to be aware that these women literally have their fingernails and their punches and their kicks and maybe some eye gouging to defend themselves. We don't have any of that. According to a report in March this year by the National Homicide Monitoring Program, um, stranger homicides um, are up 35% on the previous decade across Australia. Males accounted for 87% of homicide offenders um, in 2019 to 2020, but of the victims, 65% were male and 35% were female. And this is because Generally, young men, 18 to 35, are the most common victims as well as offenders. The most common cause of death for homicide victims in Australia were stab wounds and 28% of homicides occurred in a public setting such as a park or a street. Victoria, the state that I live in, that Melbourne's the capital of, recorded the biggest increase compared to the previous five years with homicides up 46%. Now, I'm going to try not to get upset during this, but just keep in mind that some of these places I talk about, um, just the cases that came to me that I put down the information and then just looked up the dates they happened. Some of them are streets I walk down often, um, especially in Melbourne. These are things that like happen to people, you know, who are connected to people that I know and things like that. It, it, we're only a country of 25 million and when you run into another Australian on the tube in London on your first day in London, um, a girl I went to school with, I ran into on the tube, you realise like mm, there's only 25 million of us but we're everywhere. So the first case I thought of was the case of Anita Cobby. That was in February 1986 and it goes down as one of the worst crimes in Australian history Anita was a recently separated ex-beauty pageant queen. She was 26 years old. Um, she was back living with her parents in the outskirts of Sydney uh, in Blacktown in 1986, just trying to find get her life together. She'd been out that night, summer, in February here, so she'd been out with some friends and she got the train back. She went to use the payphone to call her dad at home Um I'm doing this from memory because I know that most of these cases really well um, and the payphone wasn't working. Someone had vandalised it so she thought it's only a 10-minute walk, I'll start walking um, and not long after that she was dragged into a car by five young men who were the lowest of Australian society and still are. Um, I can't even really think about them um, because I know the details of the case and I've I've read the case report. Um, of how she died, and yeah, I just can't. Um, they kidnapped her, they raped her, and they tortured her, and then finally they cut her throat and left Anita Cobby on a farm for the owner. The following morning, to find when he saw his cows milling around, what he thought was a dead animal. Please don't look up the details of Anita's case and what they did to her because those animals are are not even the worst serial killers or worst cases I've ever come across. They pale in comparison to what they did to Anita Cobby and you'll never forget it. The outcry for this really led to women changing their habits. My mum was around Anita's age. Um, She was recently married, um, sometimes getting public transport home from work and she did not do that anymore women were fearful um all five killers were low intelligent dull bludgers uh with histories of assault theft and bestiality among other things uh, John Travers, Michael Murdoch and three brothers whose parents must have been incredibly proud, although I'm guessing that they created the monsters, Michael, Gary and Les Murphy. They all got life with no parole and they continue to rot in prison and I believe that the other prisoners really give it to them. So I think most of them have been in solitary for a long time and um, personally. Uh, I don't as a taxpayer feel that I should be contributing to any of them and if you think that's harsh look up what they did to Anita as she was dying um, and you may feel differently. June and July of 1993 um, about seven years after the murder of Anita Cobby the next one I thought of was a local case to me um, happened in Frankston in southeast Melbourne. I was living about 20 minutes away at the time as a little girl. 18-year-old Elizabeth Stevens was found. She had been strangled, stabbed, and her throat had been slashed and a pattern in a crisscross pattern had been carved into her chest using a sharp knife. The next month, 22-year-old Deborah Freem, she had a 12-day-old son. She was a new mum and just in like a bliss bubble She had a friend come to visit her and she quickly popped out for eggs and milk at the local milk bar, as we called it, or corner store and left her friend with the little baby sleeping at home. She never came back. She was found four days later in an entirely other suburb, not far from Frankston. She'd been strangled. um, Her body had been completely carved up and her throat had been cut. 22 days later, 17-year-old schoolgirl Natalie Russell was attacked while walking home from school. She was walking along a path that we regularly used um, until this happened. She was dragged from that path through a hole in a barbed wire fence um, by the perpetrator. And she had died basically the same way as the other women. But during the attack, as we'll talk about with another woman coming up, she put up a massive fight for a 17-year-old schoolgirl, Natalie Russell. She wasn't going down easy. She clawed the shit out of whoever this person was. And luckily, even though it was 1993, uh, they collected the DNA evidence from underneath her fingernails, which would ultimately lead them to the killer of Natalie and also Elizabeth and Deborah's killer in early 1994. He was a 21-year-old young loser called Paul Denyer, who went on to be nicknamed the Frankston serial killer. I don't, I obviously never do him on an episode because there's no point. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's suspected in a large number of other cases, but they've never been able to get him on them, including the disappearance of a girl called Sarah McDermott around 993 in a similar area. He was sentenced to life with a 30-year parole period, which is 10 years uh, per murder, Um, and he's due out next year. In 1995, Australia's most notorious serial killer, Ivan Malat, was arrested and jailed for the murder of seven people between 1989 and 1992. I just want to say to any podcasters, because I always hear Americans cover Ivan Malat, and I've heard his name. I've never heard it pronounced properly. Um, and it kind of gives me the shit. So I'm going full Aussie on this episode. Um, it's not Malat, um, or or however, Nick from True Crime Garage, who I love was saying it. Um, or it's not Millet, it's Malat hit that at hard. It's Croatian. So Ivan Malat, uh, killed seven people at least. Uh, I reckon it's more like 27 people between 1989 and 1992. Five of the seven victims were international tourists visiting here and backpacking around Australia. Two were Australians of the seven and five were women. If you know the movie Wolf Creek, it they say it's loosely based on Ivan Milat. It's really not. It's set in a completely different part of the country. Um, there's a couple of elements that they took from Ivan Milat's kind of the way he talked and... Um, a couple of gross things he said in that episode um they th- but it's it's not it's not a um autobiography or biography he killed these backpackers after picking them up hitchhiking um, he took them to the Belanglo state forest outside of sydney um and he did things to them that i do not want to repeat but to me, because I've always known the Malak case, and if you want to read a good book, there's a book called Sins of the Brother, uh, which I've got on my bookshelf. And at some point I will do Ivan's story, um, all the stories of the victims. Uh, but basically, it's always seemed to me that the women were the targets and the two men who just happened to be with their girlfriends um, were just in the way. And it seems that he took them out very quickly. Um, Ivan Millat received life in prison and he died in 2019. Thank God it took him ages to die too. Again, just a complete waste of space. And his family is too. Deborah Everest was one of his victims. She was from Melbourne. She was traveling with her boyfriend, James Gibson. Um, Another one was uh, Simone Schmidl. She was backpacking by herself. She was from Germany. She went missing in 1991. Then there was a German couple called Gabor Neugebauer and Anya Habschied. Uh, they disappeared while backpacking in 1991. And then um, the final two confirmed ones were Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters, who were two British backpackers who Ivan Milat unfortunately picked up. Now, it would be a British backpacker called Paul Onions, believe it or not who would ultimately crack the case, which is an incredible story um, and one I hope to tell at some point. Perth, 1996 to 1997. Perth locals Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon all disappear over a period of time from outside the same hotel in Perth hotel meaning pub. Sarah Spears and Jane Rimmer were both local Perth chicks and Kira Glennon was actually an Irish girl um, who lived out here and was practicing as a lawyer. Jane and Kira's bodies were found in bushland after they both went missing separately. None of these girls knew each other. Sarah Spears's body has never been found. But 27 year old Irish lawyer Kira, much like Natalie Russell with Paul Denyer um, just three years before, put up the fight of her life. And as a result, uh, they would be able to take substantial amounts of DNA from underneath her fingernails in the hopes that one day they'd be able to link it to someone. And this would be this person's downfall. The investigation lasted decades and was Western Australia's biggest ever investigation. And in December 2016, everyone was so shocked to hear that they had made an arrest in this decades-old case. I almost fell off my chair. It was a man named Bradley Robert Edwards. In 2020, he finally went to trial and he was found guilty um, of the murders of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon, but not of Sarah Spears, because her body has never been found and there just wasn't enough evidence. But most people know that he killed Sarah Spears. He received 40 years minimum and he will likely die in prison because he's like in his 50s. There is a really good podcast, if you're interested in that case, by the Western Australian uh, that at the time the trial was going on, they were live podcasting and telling the stories of these girls and talking to their families and it was really fascinating. There's also a really good episode of the show Crime Investigation Australia on Ivan Milat, the Claremont killings. Um, The next case I'm going to talk about, that show did everything and they did it in a really tasteful way. October 1997, one of my least favourite cases um, to ever talk about, uh, the biggest schoolgirls murders. Country girls, 14-year-old Lauren Barry and her friend, 16-year-old Nicole Collins, were camping with friends when they decided to walk into town after dark. Two men pulled up and offered them a lift the girls got in the car because they were quite naive country girls but they did not know that these were two drug addicted serial offenders Leslie Camilleri and Lindsay Beckett both in their 20s at the time they kept the two girls hostage with one of the men driving and the other one in the back holding them captive. They were repeatedly raped for between two and three days, stopped off at various points, raped, tortured, and ultimately when the men got sick of it and started getting tired because they were high on drugs and staying awake this entire time, they took them where my dad used to take us camping um, up until this happened at least, a really idyllic little picturesque calm spot um, on the Victoria New South Wales border called Can River and they were stabbed to death on Can River. Mm. Ultimately, Leslie Camilleri was found guilty um, in 1999 and he was sentenced to life in prison. He, very few people in Australia have what's called never to be released marked on their file and Leslie Camilleri is one of them and coming up I'll talk about another one that does. The other perpetrator, Lindsay Beckett, they, the judge and the jury saw him as less of a perpetrator and more led by Camilleri, which I disagree with, um, but whatever. He was sentenced to life in p- prison with a minimum parole period of 35 years. Um, so in about 10 years time, he can apply for parole. When he gets out, because Australia immediately deports people who hold dual citizenship or are citizens of another country, um, he will be immediately deported to New Zealand where he is from. So watch out. In 1997 in November, Messina Helvargas, who was 25, was murdered in my city, Melbourne. Her case rocked Melbourne. And her beloved dad, George, was one of my mum's patients later on. She was visiting her grandma's grave in Faulkner cemetery, cemetery, a cemetery in Melbourne's north. Messina came from a Greek family and her grandma's grave was in the Greek Orthodox section of Faulkner Cemetery. It was the middle of the day, broad daylight, other people in the cemetery She did not return home and her fiancé went looking for her and he found her stabbed 87 times laying over her grandma's grave. Someone had, as she knelt down to arrange the flowers on her grandma's grave, had come up and just completely gone mental she was stabbed 87 times many of these stab wounds around her breasts which would be a calling card of this person a man was seen casually jogging away from the scene by a woman at a distance but Messina's body wasn't found until the next morning and once they put the call out for information that's when a few people who had seen things that they thought could be something came forward but Messina's case went cold even with a one million dollar reward on offer In April 1998, a man booked an appointment with a young, new 28-year-old psychotherapist who was running her own clinic out of her little terrace house in Melbourne's inner north. Her name was Nicole Patterson. She did not answer her phone afterwards, and when people checked on her, uh, she was found with 27 stab wounds, and both of her breasts had been removed. The man responsible for Nicole Patterson's murder was finally caught through DNA in 1999 and his name will go down in Australian serial killer history. His name is Peter Dupass. When he was arrested for Nicole Patterson's murder, that is when through DNA they were finally able to make the connection with Messina Helvargas's murder And her beloved parents, including George, who my mum said was just a lovely man, and he is still alive um, and regularly goes down to visit uh, Messina's grave, which is where she was killed. Um, I believe she's, or she could be at Cheltenham Cemetery, actually. Um, They finally got answers. And through that, they were finally able to link that to a cold case from two years previous, the murder of a 40-year-old sex worker called Margaret Mayer in Melbourne's North in October of 1997, the month before Peter Dupas killed Messina Helvargas, he killed Margaret Mayer. So he went away for the three murders, but they believe he's responsible for at least three other high-profile murders of women in Melbourne um, and I wouldn't be surprised. He is one of Australia's most notorious serial killers and his criminal signature was to remove the breasts um, of the female, which he did to completion with Nicole Patterson. We have very few people, as I said, marked never to be released, including, you know, Anita Cobby's killers um, and... Other ones I'll talk about. And Peter Dupas is marked as never to be released. He got three life imprisonments, three sentences of life imprisonment without parole, and they stamped it never to be released. In July of 2012, 40-year-old sex worker Tracy Connolly was stabbed to death in the van that she was living in in the city in the seaside suburb of St Kilda, which is probably about 10 minutes from where I live. There was no vigil, no outcry like with uh, Messina Helvagas or Nicole Patterson or Anita Cobby. Uh, no one even knows Tracy's name. She's a footnote uh, but most of her presence is on the Victoria Police website and I give them credit because she's won a few $1 million rewards that are available for answers into cases so they take this seriously. Tracy was living in her van, she was homeless at the time um, and she had a boyfriend but he was not there at the time and I believe he was ruled out pretty early on, I believe he found her actually Um, and her case remains unsolved and there has been zero movement but someone knows something and in those communities women talk, there's quite a lot of sex workers in St Kilda, Uh, it's just always been that way. And there's quite the back streets of, um, I go there quite a lot, the back streets are quite, quite scary, um especially after dark. Two months after Tracy Connolly's murder in September of 2012, Melbourne had what is arguably its most infamous murder to date. That of Irish expat Jill Maher, who was stalked, raped and murdered as she walked home in a trendy inner city suburb by a repeat offender who the parole board had repeatedly let out, despite the fact that he was a danger to women and men. Um, I just haven't covered Jill's case, even though she's Irish and was killed in Melbourne, because I just can't bring myself to. Police recovered Jill's broken body after five days on an isolated property And through really great police work, her killer was identified, and that was Adrian Bailey, who had hundreds of offences to his name, and it took him murdering Jill to go away for life. But in his police interview, if you ever watch it, he blames her and says, you know, basically, when she went missing, um, they shops on this main street in Brunswick, which is a trendy suburb of Melbourne. Um, she was coming home from a night out with workmates. Uh, shops looked at their CCTV and a bridal store actually <clears throat> about one o'clock in the morning saw Jill walking past and then a man walking behind her and she turns and they have a short conversation then she keeps walking. And then another shop Captures CCTV of Jill in the distance, and this man just starts running after her. Um, and that was Adrian Bailey, and that was Jill Mar. Now his justification was he had asked her for a smoke, and she'd told him to get fucked, and she was a fucking bitch about it, or something like that. Um, typical, you know. So there were huge outcries and vigils. I was actually living in England at the time, and it was all over the news there um women marched down the streets of Brunswick uh demanding more safety huge outcries Adrian Bailey received life imprisonment with a non-parole period of 40 years he's eligible for parole in 2055 but hopefully he'll be dead by then because he's 50 now and I don't think he's having a good time in prison um because of the crime that he did and the fact that prisoners don't take too well to that That year, an Australian feminist group um, that tracks these cases called Destroy the Joint, each year they kind of track cases of women being killed either by partners or by strangers. 2012, when Jill Ma was killed, uh, was a record high. Uh, 69 violent female murders happened in Australia that year and usually it's around 40 to 50. 2013, saw 66. Destroy the Joint was actually founded by a um, female surgeon in Melbourne. Her name's Dr. Jill Tomlinson. March 2015, uh, Melbourne schoolgirl Marsa Vukatic, I'm never good with the Croatian names, uh, Vukatic, 17, she went for a walk after dinner near her home. Um, She lived at home and she was in probably year 12, final year of school. Uh, Unfortunately, she crossed paths with a similar repeat offender. This one's name was Sean Price, who was 31. He just attacked her randomly um, in the park. He stabbed her 49 times as she begged for her life. She did not know Sean Price and had never seen him before. He had a history of violent sexual offences and he was out on bail when he killed Marsa. His excuse was, To police when asked why he killed Marsa was, quote, she was dressed like a yuppie and was talking to a bird like she was Snow White. I fucking had to kill her, unquote. Yep. He was given a non parole period of 38 years uh, in the Victorian Supreme Court and he continues to attack other inmates and guards regularly. Um, And if you look at the picture of this guy, there's just nothing there behind his eyes. He was dead a long time ago. uh, And, you know, why do I why do we pay taxes for these people? Someone tell me. In two thousand and seventeen, uh, Melbourne pastry chef Renee Lau, who was a Chinese national living in Melbourne, was heading to work on foot at five AM in the heart of the city on a big busy street called King's Domain when she was stalked, raped, beat, and murdered um by another repeat offender. As the age pointed out, there was no vigil and barely anyone took any notice and I honestly can't even remember it happening. It was only later when they started talking in depth about all of these murders that I even heard about Renee's case. A lot of people think this was because she was Chinese and I actually think that's the case too. She just didn't fit uh, what the media wanted to cover. Um, an academic writer wrote a piece uh, about the silence, quote unquote, and, uh, Related to Renee Lau's death, this writer, uh, her name is Grace Ye. In June 2018, Melbourne stand-up comedian Eurydice Dixon was stalked, raped and murdered metres from home after walking home from a gig in central Melbourne late at night. She lay there dead all night in the winter cold in a big park called Princess Park until dog walkers found her the next day. There was a huge vigil and public outcry at Prince's Park. James Todd, her murderer, received life in prison with a minimum of 35 years. He believes this sentence is quote-unquote excessive. In January 2019, Israeli international student Aya Maswa was stalked off a bus as she returned to her home on the outskirts of Melbourne in a suburb called Bandura. She was attacked and murdered on a warm summer night uh, by another local creep. There was a large vigil for Aya and a lot of public outcry and people were just disgusted that another expat living here like Jill Ma had been murdered just going about her business and I can't even think of Aya's dad because his face it's just burned into my memory. Um, He had to come out here and he said that when he thinks of Australia now because he returned Aya's body to Israel he thinks about it even though the police were great and Australians really offered him support and uh, he got so much of that he just thinks of Australia as a terrible place and I don't blame him eyes um, killer sean pro I killer um is in prison for life um it seems with a non parole period it takes a lot to get marks never to be released. May 2019, just months after Aya's murder, homeless 25-year-old Courtney Heron was beaten to death with a stick by a schizophrenic 26-year-old named Henry Hammond in a park in Melbourne. Henry Hammond was on a community corrections order. He'd been in prison previously and he was out on bail despite threatening his ex-girlfriend with a knife and trying to strangle her to death. Hammond appealed this ten-month sentence that he got for trying to kill the ex-girlfriend. Ten-month sentence, um, and the parole board decided to release him under a corrections order, which means nothing because that's actually what Jill Mar's killer was out under as well. Six weeks later, he bashed Courtney Heron to death with a branch of a tree in a Melbourne park hours after she had bought him dinner because she felt sorry for him. Hammond was found not guilty, but he is in a psychiatric facility for like the next 25 years, uh, which I guess can't be good. Courtney Heron barely got any media attention because she was homeless. People were really fried at this point, um, the number in the last two years before that. People were really almost like just tapped out from it all, um, just really burnt out from all of the names um, and the constant onslaught. Um, And she did not get a vigil as far as I can remember because she was kind of seen as lesser than, I guess. In 2019, 56 Australian women suffered violent deaths that same year. And in two thousand and nineteen, um, a group called We Keep Vigil uh, to honor victims female victims of male violence uh, was set up by two Melbourne women um just for public engagement and to remember these women's names after courtney heron's murder uh, the police really stepped it up. Victoria Police Assistant Commissioner Luke Cornelius said at the time quote. The point is this is about men's behaviour, it's not about women's behaviour and every time I hear of a woman being attacked in our community, as a man it gives me pause for a reflection about what it is in our community that allows some men to think it's okay to attack women or to take from women what they want for whatever reason, unquote. 2020 saw 55 women murdered and there were some really violent ones um, with the onset of lockdowns, um, yeah. In May this year, Mamma Mia published a piece titled 22 Weeks, 20 Women Murdered, This is a National Crisis. That was counting the women who had been killed um, in the first 22 weeks of the year here. As I said before most women are murdered by men that they know whether it's their partners or a male family friend or even an acquaintance unlike the women that I discussed just now but it doesn't make it any better. Every single case to me offends me greatly and angers me greatly. If you are having issues uh, with sexual assault, domestic or family violence, or just need help in Australia, please call one respect which is one 737 732 This is confidential. It's open to people from all across Australia, no matter where you live, and they will listen to you, offer you help and refer you to services close to your home so that you can have help. But that doesn't help when it's victim's Of strangers, sadly. And where Toy accordingly lived isn't renowned for stranger on stranger murder. It isn't Melbourne or or Sydney. Melbourne has a population of 5 million people. Where Toya was murdered, the nearest city, which is 40 kilometres away, Cairns, which is where she was living at the time, has a population of just over 150,000 people and is for the most part a slow paced city with a small town feel. Toya probably saw headlines of the cases I just discussed and was grateful that she didn't live in cities like Melbourne and Sydney. Petty crime in Cairns is really the most common kind of crime and I couldn't off the top of my head think of any really nationwide famous or notorious Cairns cases. So I looked them up and every single major one that was listed in the Cairns Post, which was a really good resource, or any local papers, the Brisbane Times... They were all um interpersonal relationships or um yeah, domestic relationships. Not many of them were stranger ones. And I doubt that Toya ever thought that she would become the victim of a stranger. Um but you just don't know what's around the corner. Toya Jade Cordingley was twenty-four when she was murdered on a picturesque beach in Australia's far north Queensland. In October of 2018. This October will mark four years with no resolution to her murder. Toy, accordingly, was a breath of fresh air. And I know they say that about seemingly every victim of any crime on any true crime podcast, YouTube, dateline episode. But in this case, I think she really does exemplify that. Born on June 14th, she would have just turned 28 just a couple of weeks ago. She grew up in the city of Cairns, in a suburb of Cairns. Cairns, I will get into a little bit, uh, but basically it is a small city in far north Queensland, right on the east coast up north very hot and humid up there and it's basically where it's the gateway, that area to the Great Ocean Ocean Road that's in my state, the Great Barrier Reef, which is where a lot of international tourists end up wanting to go. Toya loved all kinds of different things. She loved changing her hair colours and she would go from having her long naturally white blonde hair She'd changed it into like, vi- vibrant colours. There's so many, so many pictures of her, which is really good. So she had bright purple hair and then magenta hair, lavender hair, pink hair. She loved espresso martinis. She loved the ocean growing up where she did. She loved cans. She loved Harry Potter. She loved the environment. She loved nothing more than spending her time outdoors uh, when she wasn't working She was the definition of lighting up a room. She was a vegan and animals were at the core of who she was, animal welfare and just love of animals. And that makes me love her even more. Almost every photo of Toya has some sort of animal, especially dogs featured in it. Her life completely revolved around them. At one point, she had lived in nearby Port Douglas, which is a beautiful city that I unfortunately have not been to, but everybody I know seems to have, and they all just want to move to Port Douglas. And while she was there, she worked at the Paws and Claws Refuge and Boarding Centre, which is a animal refuge. And um uh, local councillor for that area, Michael Kerr, also ran this boarding centre, And he told the Brisbane Times, quote, she had a way with animals, even the most loud, vicious animals. She would calm them in minutes. An aggressive dog would come in. And within 20 minutes, she was rolling around on the floor and playing with it, unquote. And if she wasn't at work or with her family, or even if she was with her family, she was with her boyfriend, Marco, who she'd been with for about two years at the time of her murder. And he... This is where it gets kind of confusing for me because it seems that Marco had one dog and that's who Toya was with. She was walking the dog at the time she was murdered. But some sources or most sources call the dog Indy. But then a couple say Jersey. And I believe he only had one dog and most sources say Indy. So that's what I'm going with. Um, And he was a big, like, slobbery, they say he's a German Shepherd, Great Dane, Mastiff mix. So a good attack dog and a dog that you would feel kind of safe uh, having with you um, anywhere you would go. Uh, But from what most sources say, Indy was very well trained because Toya was really good at training dogs and he was a very gentle dog despite his breeds. So... Uh, he would be really good with strangers um, and generally wouldn't act out like a lot of dogs of those breeds who, if they sense a threat to their owner, they're going to react. Toya was very active. She was slim, active and healthy and smiley. Her parents, I I always loved them from the time that, you know, this hit the news. Uh, They just have a really good vibe. They're these old school hippies. They're spiritual. They're warm uh, dad's got long hair, mum has got dreadlocks, uh, and this is kind of part and parcel of where they live. Uh, they loved, you know, their, their daughter. And despite not being together since Toya was a little girl, they've always put on a united front and they kind of, a lot of elements of this remind me of the Ali Warren case who was killed in Mozambique. Um, and her dad reminds me of Ali Warren's dad, Um, And just the dynamic, like, with the parents reminds me of the same. It's a really healthy dynamic. And Toya was close to both, like, her whole extended family because both remarried. Her mum, Vanessa, Gardner has dreadlocks, and she just looks like just a lovely mum. She described Toya to Nine News as joyous and spiritual and, quote, a beautiful fairy princess, unquote. And Toya loved fairies. Vanessa was remarried from the time Toya was quite young to Toya's stepdad, Darren, whose nickname is Snake. So I've decided that's what I'm going to call him for the rest of this. Snake was super close to Toya. He wrote on Facebook two months after Toya's murder, quote, normally she would pull up in the driveway and the dog would go nuts because it knew the attention it was going to receive from Toya. And having her come back home to visit us was always a special time for our family, unquote. Her dad, Troy, is a dad on par with many we've covered. He reminds me of Ali Warren's dad to the point that a number of sources say, and it's hard to find the clarification, that Troy has, like Ali Warren's dad, went to Mozambique before lockdowns and things like that. Uh, Toya's dad, Troy, uh, would go to India in search of answers for his daughter He's real, he's authentic, he's unique, he's different, he's eccentric, he's got this long hair, he's spiritual, and he looks like the he looks like Toya. He's a real true blue Aussie who won't stop fighting for his daughter. Troy is remarried to a woman named Mary, and Toya got along with both her parents' new partners. So through her mum's remarriage to Snake, Toya a freight trains going through. Toya had a brother Jack and a sister Lena. Uh and I don't believe that her dad had any further children. Close family friend David Trimble has been quite a spokesperson for Toya's family. And he called Toya, quote, a one-off, which I think is high praise, because you always want to be unique. Where they lived is basically at the northern end of the country to me, on the same coastline. The state is Queensland and the top region of Queensland they call Far North Queensland or FNQ. Up here it's sunny and hot, year round, humid and people go to cities like Cairns and Port Douglas um, for to visit the Great Barrier Reef a lot of the time for world-class scuba diving. Although I have heard that um, there's some beautiful beaches up this way I think a few have crocs in certain um, certain seasons. But this is where people come uh, to the coastal cities of Cairns or Port Douglas to see the reef. At the time of her murder, Toya was working as a pharmacy assistant in Cairns, basically doing retail and, you know, dispensing prescriptions and basic things like that as a job She had moved back from Port Douglas back to Cairns and was living with Marco, her boyfriend, for two years in Cairns. Marco also shared the love of animals uh, that Toya had Um, and his dog, who we're going with the name Indy, Toya just loved. And if Marco wasn't around, you know, Toya would be walking Indy. She walked a couple of local dogs according to the really good resource unresolved.me, which I've used before for other cases. They always cite their sources and I don't know what organisation they are or who they are, but their coverage is amazing of pretty much any case you can think of. Um, I think it's just a true crime lover, to be honest. But shout out to unresolved.me. So they said that she would dogs sit a couple of different dogs and walk a couple of local dogs. So this is where the confusion comes in. Was she with Indy or was she with one of these local dogs? And Unresolved tends to say that it's Indy uh, because they knew the nature of it. Later on, her mum would talk about the nature of this dog and knowing the dog. Uh, so that's how we know. Her last Facebook post posted to Facebook in on October 20th, 2018, the day before she was murdered, was an image of her uh, with, I believe, Indy. Um, And it kind of, in terms of last words, it really kind of sums herself up without even realising it. She wrote, quote, no matter how talented, rich or intelligent you are, how you treat animals tells me all I need to know about you, unquote. And yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Now, before I get into the details of Toya's murder and the discovery of her body, I just want to say a couple of things quickly. Uh, Police kept a lot of stuff and continue to close to their chest in this case. They, uh, in terms of they don't want to jeopardise the investigation because they only get one chance, but things have changed a little bit um, in recent years because it's now been four years and it's stalled. So they feel a little bit differently. Um, The suspect's name is out there, it's public knowledge, including information about his family, his name, everything, so it's not like I'm not saying anything that's not already out there. And also, her family early on were kind of advised not to talk too much, so they didn't jeopardise their investigation, but you can tell with recent press, particularly this year, um, now that the extradition order has pretty much stalled, even though India has it, it that their attitude has changed and now they're just going hell for leather on press because it's not going to make any difference. Um, nothing's happening regardless. So I just want to say all that up front. October 21st, 2018 was a Sunday. It was sunny, warm and the perfect day to take it easy and potter around after working in the morning for Toya. In the morning, according to unresolved.me, Toya had a shift at the pharmacy she worked at, which was the Whole Life Pharmacy and Health Foods in Earlville, which is the suburb that she lived in, in Cairns. And her job that day was to stand at like a kiosk out the front and hand out camel's milk samples uh, to people going by to see if they wanted to buy it, Um, which I would not, even though I haven't tried it. Not sure what it would taste like but let me know if you've tried it. Sorry, I'm losing my voice, guys. <clears throat> so that was until her shift ended around lunchtime. She, then she got changed into like a little hippie crochet singlet top with her now back to normal blonde hair in a bun. And at midday, Toya went to a local market where she was captured on CCTV going back to her car her car was one of her favorite things in the world as well. It was a Mitsubishi Lancer, and she had personalized number plates which read TOY, so T O Y 146. Um. So she went back to her and Marco's place, and she collected Indy, because I presume Marco was at work on this day, and Toya had the afternoon to herself, and she loved nothing more when she had time to herself than to go to specific beaches in the area, and one of them was a beach called Wangetti Beach, which is about forty kilometers uh so a little bit less than an hour from Cairns um and so she left and she her car was sighted along the way making its way there along the coast these beautiful spots um down to Wongeti Beach and it, around 2pm to 2.30pm, she parked in the South car park. Now, I'm just going to read to you from queensland.com, their official tourist website, to describe One Beach because I think it's quite important. Quote, Local secret One Beach is just north of Palm Cove in tropical North Queensland. Running from Slip Cliff Point to Red Cliff Point, The four kilometres of almost straight coastline has no facilities with only a car park on either end of the beach and a stretch of highway connecting them. When visiting Longhetti Beach it is a must to stop by the southern end as this raw patch stunning and untouched coastline has been naturally eroded leaving a quirky pebble stone covered section of the beach you can build stone towers or try your hand at skipping the stones across the water, climb across an adventure through the pebbled mounts, or simply check out the unique scenery. With easy access from Palm Cove and a plethora of camping spots close by, Wangeti Beach offers fun, relaxation, and a great view of the entire beach from the northern lookouts, unquote. So Wangeti Beach is four kilometres long, which is quite long it has no amenities as that said so there's no toilets there's no facilities there's no kiosks there's nothing it's an isolated strip of beach it is absolutely stunning it's like reminiscent of something you'd see in thailand or or mexico or it's really hard to place it it's white sand beach turquoise water um and then the back is bushland so it backs onto bush Um, which I think will play a part in this. So Toya parked in the South car park, uh, which they discussed in that caption from queensland.com. Sorry, I've been losing my voice for like two weeks and I think it's finally gone. So then Toya went quiet. Later that night, her boyfriend Marco finally contacted Toya's family um, as the sun set and she hadn't returned with Indy. And the family got on it right away, uh, reaching out on Facebook, putting posts up, asking if anyone had heard from Toya or where she was trying to contact her. Around 11pm, the family had contacted police, but before that, they'd gone out to search at a few local beaches and returned home where the police were, and they took a police report her brother Jack and her dad went out with Marco I believe and they went out with torches and she had mentioned that she might go to Wangetti Beach to Marco so that's where they ended up heading to and their blood kind of chilled when they saw Toya's car in the dark parked in the south end now again no facilities here nothing along here just a highway then the beach bushland behind the beach and then the highway and a car park on either end, and there was her Mitsubishi Lancer, but no sign of Toya or Indy. A short while later, they grabbed their torches or flashlights and went out walking along the beach and just trying to call out for Toya and Indy and nothing. And then a short while later, about 800 metres from where the car was parked, so almost a kilometre, they found Indy, Tied to a tree. This dog was tied up near the southern end of the beach, not very far from the car park, really, when you consider that Toya probably was going to walk the length of the beach, maybe. And according to Vanessa, Toya's mum, who actually found Indy tied up, he was tied up, quote, so tight it couldn't sit down, unquote. So it was tied up in a position where it was so tight around its neck. It couldn't even position itself to sit down. And this was like hours and hours and hours, which is terrible to think about. Um, But we know what we know about Toya. We know she's an animal lover. We know she looks after dogs. She's worked in rescues. You can immediately say it was not Toya who tied the dog up. There's just no way in hell she would not have allowed that, not even for five minutes, not when it's hot up there. Um, I'm sure that she had the dog off leash for a time. This is one of the puzzle pieces that I can't quite put together in my mind. But I doubt she had the dog on a lead walking it on this relatively deserted beach. People are there, they do come and go. But to me, it seems that someone else tied it to that tree. And to most people, it seems that way. Toya's mum, her phone would ultimately die. So she would return to her car to charge her phone, but Toya's dad, Troy, uh, would not sleep that night. He would lead these search efforts focused around Wongeti Beach, desperately trying to find Toya. They searched basically all night on and off, but the darkness kind of got the best of them. And it was at around 7.45am. So around 16 hours after Toya first arrived at Wongeti Beach, that her body was discovered, and it was discovered by her dad, Troy. It was around 800 meters from her car, not very far from where the dog had been tied up on the tree, and she was basically partially buried in sand dunes. Now, police would say that in daylight the next day, someone would have seen her eventually, because it just stood out um, on those sand dunes, but it was just the darkness that had impeded them. So it's the sea, then the sand, then dunes, then bushland. And apparently, which is no surprise, Troy basically had to be supported physically by fellow search members who like a hundred people had come out overnight. <laughs> um, this is how the local community works in these smaller cities and towns. They just drop everything. And you see that in the I haven't covered it yet, but the um Theo Hayes case, he was a young Belgian guy who's still missing. He went missing in Byron Bay. And how that community, with the police kind of saying, at this point we don't know what happened, that community continues to search week in, week out for answers as to what happened to Theo. And these are people who don't even know him. He was Belgian. He was traveling through there for like three days when he went missing. And the locals who run it are locals for decades. And they're just like, we just didn't want this happening in our town. They put up his parents when they came out from Belgium. They're amazing. And this particular area with the toy accordingly case, albeit it's in the state above, they were no exception. A couple of months later, um, Troy, Toy's dad, would take to Facebook to explain how he felt finding his daughter's murdered body he wrote, quote, Toya is my only child. Finding her body has burned an indelible image in my mind. It is something a father should never have to suffer. Unquote. Little has been made public by the police about the state of Toya's body or her cause of death, but we do know that she fought for her life. She was found partially naked, I believe buried in sand dunes behind the beach that her parents had frantically walked past searching the night before with torches when they found Indy. Police have said, however, that her injuries were, quote, visible and violent, and I presume that she was raped. Police believe that sexual assault was the motivation. Now, in regards to the dog, I don't know why the dog was tied up, but There was a quote from Toya's mum, I believe, that discussed the nature of this dog and how it was so well trained that basically any stranger could have taken the dog by its lead and tied it up and it wouldn't have done anything. But what I can tell you is if that had happened first and then this person started attacking Toya, this dog being like a German Shepherd... Very protective breed, great Dane mix with a mastiff would have started going mad, which makes me think that there was no one around. And other than a family that they've never been able to track who was picnicking at the southern end, it doesn't seem that there was many people on the beach at the time, not at this time, if any. Sunday's quite a quiet day. You would think that more people would be there with their families, though. But I could only imagine as Toya fought for her life, Indy was barking um, and probably trying to get to her, probably almost hanging itself trying to break free. Nobody heard anything though no screaming or Indy howling. And I think by the time that they found the dog, they said that it was visibly distressed. In June, just four months before her murder, <coughs> Eurydice Dixon, who I discussed at the start of this episode, one of many names, the Melbourneian up-and-coming comedian who was stalked, raped and murdered on her way home from a gig in June of 2018, had been killed. And this had obviously affected Toya because Toya took to her own Facebook and she wrote this, quote, I can only imagine the rage and fear women feel to see women die doing everyday mundane things like walking home, only to then be told it's their fault and that they need to be more careful, stop blaming women, make men the issue, unquote. And little would she know that four months later other women would be enraged that Toy Accordingly had been murdered doing the same Police very quickly mobilized on this. You don't really get um, random crimes like this so much, at least not up in Far North Queensland or Cairnsway. And the community was not happy. A monster was in their midst. Police did a really good job. They door knocked, they fielded hundreds of tips. They even went door to door taking DNA voluntarily um, from, I think, men and women. Um, they got dash cam footage down to, at one point within two months, they had it down to a five minute increment. They tracked people's phones in the area. They basically did like a geofencing kind of thing. Um, it was really good considering it's the, you know, Queensland police, which probably don't have uh, the amount of massive national... Violent crimes that get the national attention that cities like Melbourne do, where I think that uh Victoria Police or New South Wales Police would be more versed in that. When Getty Beach was completely shut down, um, police used drones, search dogs, and boats to try to find any additional evidence that they may have missed. Toya's phone, wallet, keys, and a couple of items of clothing that they haven't elaborated on. Uh, were missing because I believe she was almost completely nude at that time. And police haven't said what they found, but they said it was bits and pieces of things. Even before a suspect was isolated, they made it clear that Toya had seemingly bit her attacker hard. Um, I guess they could tell that from the state of her mouth. Maybe it was bleeding. They have not confirmed that, and used her fingernails and that these injuries would be visible on someone and seemingly DNA had been collected. Hundreds of local volunteers were involved for months scouring Wangetti Beach and surrounds. Police even put, you know, call-outs for dash cam footage from beaches 200 kilometers away and many local volunteers took their own dogs down to the beach to see if they could, you know, sniff anything out. Family friend David Trimble said that the Cordingley family was not dealing well. He said, quote, I went to see them there the other day and it's a bit like walking into hell, unquote. 400 people attended Toya's funeral in Cairns. The church was adorned with yellow sunflowers, Toya's favourite flower. And Marco bought India the dog that seemingly witnessed Toya or at least heard her being killed and was there in her final moments. And I just, I wish that dog could tell us what it knew. Three weeks after Toya's murder, 200 local residents did a reclamation ceremony at Wong Beach. They bought flowers and they created a human chain on the beach where she fought for her life. One local resident, Bronwyn Fair, spoke to ABC about the event. She said, quote, everyone comes to this beach to walk their dog here. Today has somewhat helped us to some extent reclaim our beach, unquote. She said that the community was in shock because it's such a family-friendly beach and, you know, um, it's a very like vibrant place and it felt like there was just such a darkness over it. Um, And she said, quote, the perpetrator has picked the wrong community. We are not going to let this become yesterday's news, unquote. And I can tell you almost four years on, that's the case with the local community and the local members of parliament and the local councillors. More than 500 reports were received by police and tips in the days following Toya's murder and weeks. Um... And in the days and weeks after her murder, Queensland police would say, well, basically because they've been so tight-lipped about what they what they did and what they know, but they've released bits and pieces and ultimately the final name was leaked to the media from someone within the police, they believe. Um, but a lot of people had called crime stoppers with descriptions of men that they'd seen Lurking around one Getty Beach and just strange incidents that people had had. Now, one witness um, on the same afternoon that Toya was murdered, and she doesn't say whether it's morning or earlier than that in the afternoon, so right after lunch when Toya wasn't there yet, or later in the afternoon. But one woman came forward and said that she saw two men leaving the beach who were in like a really weird, panicked state. Now, this could have just been her read on it, um, but basically she had been at a, on the beach at a get-together, the northern end. Remember, this is four kilometres long, and there was about 15 people at this get-together on the beach. Um, and he'd left the get-together, and he was driving down the Cook Highway, which runs parallel to the beach, and he was flagged down by two men on the side of the road near the southern car park, which is where Toya had parked her own car. And the witness said that the men were in a highly agitated state, quote unquote, which didn't make much sense because when this guy said, what's what's the problem? They said that they had a flat tyre and needed help changing it, having like lost their own tyre jack. And the witness said, quote, they were really freaking out. It was strange behaviour. They were in a huge panic. It was just a flat tyre, but they were really stressing out, unquote. Now, the witness would describe the two men on the side of the road as scruffy and he said ultimately he helped them change the tyre and they drove off and they were driving a white ute or utility vehicle. Now, police would later say that they'd located the two men, spoken to them and they were accounted for because this was high profile in Australia and in the early days and especially in Queensland and in the area and they'd been able to locate them and that most people who were in that area, were seen on people's dash cam footage, um, or local CCTV heading that direction had been accounted for. And this is one of the ways that police were able to narrow down, uh, to someone. But unfortunately, by the time that they narrowed it down to this one particular person, which would be in December of 2018, this person had fled, which doesn't look good for this person. Now. Basically, police got it down to identifying vehicles in a five-minute period on dash cam footage along that highway part near the southern end of Wangetti Beach. And they've never said why or how they got to that five minutes, but as unresolved.me points out, it's a very specific duration of time, as they put it, um, which makes you think that the police know more than they've let on, which is obvious. So, Basically, within, by early December, police would announce that they were zoning in on one particular suspect, but they didn't release the name of this person. It was actually, as I said, a leak that they believe was internal from from someone who was within Queensland Police. And this person, their actions are not good. And I, I'm going to say from the outset, this person has not been charged there is currently an extradition order in place for them. Unfortunately, this is on India now, and this person, from me reading between the lines of what India said just last month, I believe that they cannot find him in India. Now, I am just saying from my own personal opinion, I believe this person most likely did it. I think that most people do. Um, I believe that people, that this person knows, know where he is and that he did do it. Um, and you can't, there's no way around the actions of this person, the evidence. Um, and that is why Queensland police have stopped looking for the murder of Toy accordingly because they know who it is. Um, so basically this suspect, his movements, he basically came to the attention of police, um, in a number of different ways. People had seen, a strange man who matched this man's description frequenting the same beach. And through the process of elimination with the different cars dashcam footages and things like that, they were able to zone it down um, to this particular suspect. Rajwinder Singh is an Indian national. He moved to Australia, um, I believe, about three or four years uh, before... Toya accordingly's death, he had a family or has a family, um, a wife, three children, one of whom was a small baby when Toya was murdered. Um, he worked as a nurse. I don't know if he did back in India, but here in Australia, he did a lot of. We have quite a large, you know, um, Indian population of nurses and doctors and things like that. And a lot of the time they have to repeat their their university degrees um, because it doesn't translate, it doesn't, it's not accepted in Australia like a degree from India a lot of the time. So my GP, for instance, um, is Indian and she she had to do her medical degree twice. Um, So basically how did they, what about him sets him apart So Rajwinder Singh, the day, in the lead up to um, Toy Accordingly's murder, Rajwinder Singh, according to people who knew him, had started to display quite depressive bouts. Um, He would regularly kind of take time off work as a nurse with no explanation to his employers of where he was, or what he was doing, um and he was known to frequent one Getty beach uh police as i'm I keep repeating, they have never clarified you know yes, he was on uh dash cam footage or yes, this, they've kept a lot close to their chest, but this is what we know, so basically, police were able to track his phone once they landed on him as a person of interest and they were able to triangulate his phone basically to exactly where Toya's was um, at the time of her murder. Now, Rajwinder Singh speaks Hindi, Punjabi and English. Uh, he regularly spent time on that beach, and according to a witness who knew him, when he returned home that day after Toya's death, even though he never said he was at the beach, no one's ever been able to speak to him about it, he had what was described as visible scratch and bite marks on him. Now, he worked at a as a nurse in Innisfail, which is about 90 kilometres south of Cairns. Uh, they grow a lot of bananas there. That's what I know. So when it floods, like 10 years ago, when we had big floods there, uh, a banana smoothie cost like $150. So basically, the afternoon when he comes back with scratches and bite marks and all of that jazz, he immediately went and purchased a ticket to back home to India. Keep in mind he has two young children, a wife and a baby, so he's a father of three. He then contacted his work, quit his job at Inisfail Hospital. Um, he booked a flight for the next day back to India He left, abandoned his wife and children and flew to India on the same day that Toya's body was discovered. Now, I want you to keep in mind that this is even before her body is discovered. This is not uh, pressure because police have zoned in on you at this point. That wouldn't come for months. So by the time police did zone in on him, he had been gone for like two months. So it's not like you were taken in by police and treated poorly or anything like that. Um, a lot of people in Australia on trial get away with stuff even when they're clearly guilty. Um, I think we have a pretty fair legal system and compared to a lot of places um, and I can't excuse any of these behaviours. It's not just odd behaviour, it's clearly like culpable behaviour. Now, apparently, according to uh, a lot of sources, including unresolved.me, a couple of days after Rajwinder Singh left to go to India, his father, who was living out here, also left to go to India under the pretense of trying to find him. He had pretty much come home with his ticket, packed up his stuff, he went to the airport. He flew from Cairns to Sydney because you can't fly direct. I don't think from India from Cairns to India. It's not a it's not a hub airport. You have to generally go through Sydney. He flew down to Sydney. His sister was living in Sydney. He visited with her for like a few hours and then he flew to India. Now, basically, he immediately like lost his job because he'd already been taking off time with no explanation, which I can only imagine. Um, and when he became a public suspect in this case, uh, Innisfail Hospital, quickly distanced themselves uh, from him. Now, he. what we do know is that he flew to a city called Amritsar, which is in the Punjab region of India, and then he seemingly vanished. Now, basically, there's after this, the trail goes cold, except for a few independent investigations by Seven News who went to India and a lot of different theories about where he is, if you believe his family, who say that they've never heard from him again. His wife says she's never heard from him again, which just my my opinion purely, I do not believe. Um, his family in India says that they've never seen him there they said that he was like a kind and gentle man. So immediately when you back it up with that, like they told Seven News, um, I immediately think, no, like I'm sure someone's heard from him. Um, initially his neighbours in Queensland, like refused to even entertain the thought that he had been the murderer of Toy accordingly, because they said he was such like a quiet, nice man, family man, they said, but so was... Gary Ridgeway, so was BTK, so was John Wayne Gacy. It means nothing to me. Um, The rest of it means everything to me. Um, Basically, a spokesman for the family said, quote, if someone wants to hide, it is easy to hide in India, unquote. Now, some people think that he could be living off kind of the generosity of temples, like Sikh temples, especially up north. And they tend to zone in on an area 450 kilometres north of New Delhi, up near the Pakistani border, and that he could be flitting between Pakistan and India. Now, this wouldn't be totally weird because, like, Pakistan, like, ha- he, like kept Al-Qaeda people, like, and didn't hand them over, Um he could be living under a fake identity. Now, when you look up his name, it is a really common Indian name um, and Singh obviously is. So uh, he, he, how hard would it be to track him? Now, according to most sources I've seen, he's never accessed his bank accounts ever again, but I think that just means Australian ones because we're not getting a whole lot of um, help from India at this point in time. And they believe that living un, like in Sikh temples can get you free food and board and things like that. And that's why back on episode five, we talked about Ryan Chambers and how people think he could still be alive after, you know, 17 years because he could be like living, not knowing who he is in Sikh temples, just off the generosity of others and that they give out meals and things like that. Um. So that's where they believe he could be. Now, I'm going to play you a clip from Channel 7, uh, which I believe was about 2019. Um, And then after that, I'm going to play you a clip from 60 Minutes. Now, 60 Minutes only has one tiny clip available on YouTube of their whole story they did on Toya, which went for half an hour. seems that they've removed it, which makes me question Why? I would really like to watch it. I believe it's called Murder in Paradise. Um, but first off, I'm going to play you the clip from Channel 7 because Channel 7, an Australian news organisation, before lockdowns and things actually went to this part of India, located um, his family and spoke to them with the help of the translator. and Now they invited them in and gave him a cup of tea and stuff like that. That doesn't mean anything to me, um, them being nice or whatever. But when you watch the actual clip and you just see the sheer number of people, um, India has like a billion people. I don't even know where you'd begin to try to find him. And when I wrap up this episode really shortly, I'll tell you why I think that they have no idea where he is, despite an extradition order finally being sent out to India um, at the start of last year
1: news, he's a person of interest in one of Queensland's most high-profile murder cases, but the man wanted in connection with the death of Toy accordingly disappeared overseas. A global manhunt is underway for Rashwinder Singh and Seven News has for the first time tracked down his family in India. Rural northwest India, the, at times, tense region bordering Pakistan. (laughs) Here, outsiders stand out, locals easily blend in. And it's home to a man who doesn't want to be found. Rajvinder Singh hasn't been seen since fleeing Australia, returning to India a day after the brutal murder of 24-year-old Cairns woman Toy Accordingly at Wongedi Beach over a year ago. Evidence links him to the crime, police want to speak to him, but first, they need to find him. Seven News travel to the Punjab region following his trail. In his hometown, wary villagers admit knowing him, but give little detail. <laughs> but one eventually takes us to his family home. <laughs> where we find his uncle. I don't know where he is. I don't have any contact with him. He has never called me. Over tea, relatives confess his disappearance is strange. He was a very simple and uh, silent guy. The local police chief is offering help we know how to track a person, we can track him. Queensland police tell us they continue to appeal for anyone with information regarding Toya's murder, who may have, until now, been unwilling to speak. It's feared the missing man could be hiding out in any number of crowded cities in the area, either side of the border. As difficult as it is to find Rajvinda Singh in this densely populated region, it is only one step in the long road to justice. If Queensland police decide he is the man who committed the murder, seeking and securing his extradition back to Australia, would be a complex and lengthy process. What he did in Australia, what happened in Australia, we don't know how was the situation there, how he was behaving there. But local authorities in India stand ready and confident.
0: We will use all of the resources we have to track him and give justice to that family in Australia.
1: Justice that could come by finding a missing man half a world away. In Amritsar, India, Joel Dry, 7 News.
0: Now, there is some good news. At the beginning of last year in March, um, I think it was March 2021, uh, the federal government officially issued a international extradition order for Rajwinder Singh And that is where it stands now. Um, As of May, so, you know, it's now 1st of July, so pretty much last month or the month before, um, the police have basically said in India that they have to do location inquiries. And that's what they've said. Now, that indicates to me that they don't know where he is. I believe at some point they did know where he was. No one's ever said that. <clears throat> That's just my theory. Um, and you can't tell me that he's never contacted his children or his wife ever again, and you can't tell me that he hasn't got help over there. You just can't. There's just no way. Since this happened, I've just thought it's fucking ludicrous that this is still going on. There needs to be some cooperation, um, considering we're not adversaries with, you know, India. Um basically India said that they couldn't do anything until they got a arrest warrant and then when they've got one, nothing's happened and we're now in mid-2022. Extraditing from India is a very complex thing apparently Um, and I understand the legalities of all of that to a point but I also understand that they may not want to hand over one of their people to us but an Australian prison would be a step up from an Indian prison. That's one thing. We don't have the death penalty, so there's no reason not to extradite on that kind of moral ground. Um, And they, like a lot of countries that extradite quickly with these things, like, you know, Japan operates on a culture of shame, they should be ashamed to have the person like that in their midst, and they should cooperate in order to, as quickly, in as timely a manner as possible, to not mess up any relations that could do, do with tourism or anything like that. Things like this, like, can impact tourism. It can boycott tourism. And we have a lot of Indian immigrants living in Australia um, who come here for opportunities and they get given a lot of opportunities and um, for better wage and things like that. And I feel like that should... Re- be reciprocated um, and I don't think that's too much to ask quite frankly and I will I regularly look up if anything's happening with this case I'm always disheartened uh, when I do find that nothing has happened I was kind of perked up a bit when a, a, an extradition order was put out uh, 18 months ago and obviously that bubble has burst and I'm deflated again because I feel like nothing's going to happen Um, I'm trying to think of the recent case that we did. Was it Malaysia? I'm trying to think of what case it was. Sorry, I've done so many guys where the Malaysian police just pretty much immediately, oh, it was the killing of Victor Chang, um, where the Malaysian police worked so quickly to track down the two killers of Victor Chang. Uh, they said, we don't want them here. We're sending them back. They cooperated with Australian police when they went there. They did all of that. And that should be held as like the standard of how these things should go. Um, I understand that each country is different and I I you know, I think it should stay that way and we should respect each other's laws and things like that, but we need to cooperate when it involves the rape and a murder of a young woman but I may offend some people by saying this, but every time I open the news, there is a pack rape in India of a woman. Um, there was one yesterday I was reading about a taxi driver and a bunch of men attacked a woman and how it's a different culture there in regards to rape, um, treatment of women, um, how they're seen in society. And you've got to wonder whether or not, that impacts the speed at which they're trying to track this guy down because who knows? Who knows what they're thinking? Um and that's the reality of it. It's it's not good. Um so I'm gonna play you a clip uh quickly at the end to wrap up. But first I want to give you the Crime Stopper's number. Uh because obviously there's no point calling a number in India because they don't seem to be looking for Rushwinder Singh, uh, but if you have any information about the murder of Toy, accordingly, or the location of Rushwinder Singh, please contact Crime Stoppers on one 000. Now, i I've seen nothing about a reward, and I understand that because technically he's being extradited as a person of interest or a suspect, but also it's out of our hands now, so we can't really offer a reward. For an action that's going to take place in India, if you get what I mean, the best option would be to get one of those international organizations that go and like bounty hunt and track people down. And there's like a Polish guy who does that and he's really well known. And I can't think of who he is. I've seen him do get involved. He basically like recovers stolen children and things like that. Um, There's a lot of different international investigators who specialize in this kind of stuff. And I've, I, I'm just in case Toya's family hears this episode or anything like that and they want to come on, they're more than welcome to just email unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. But I wonder if they've thought of that um, and maybe crowdfunding in order to do that because I think now that borders are open and things like that, things stalled 2020, 2021, Australians couldn't leave Australia for that amount of time Things have changed a bit now. I think India's opened up, Australia's opened up, this would be the time, you know, and I think people would give. I really do. People will give to this kind of thing. Um, get that mad Nick guy who located the Ellie Warren's killer who's still free in Mozambique. Uh, contact him because he claims to be like a international bounty hunter. So uh, I'm not sure, but I would love to speak to um, Toya's family because uh, I've just good vibes all around with them. So, again, Crime Stoppers is 1-800-333-000. Do it out of the kindness of your heart. Don't do it because there's a, a price on it. Do it because this girl existed and she had a lot to give and she should have just turned 28. She should have had another 50 years ahead of her. She should be with her family it makes me sick and it makes me really upset. I'm going to wrap up this episode uh, with a clip from 60 Minutes uh, from a local member of parliament, Warren Ench. He's the local MP who have quite a lot of clout. You can get them involved in cases to kind of advocate for you. He's in Cairns um, and he talked to 60 minutes in a small clip that is available for their extra minute segment just about the impact of Toy Accordingly's murder on the local community um and what a close community they are I'll wrap up with that but first I will say visit the episode the website at unknownpassagepodcast.com I'll put up Toya's episode page today become a patron at links off the website um or go to patreon.com I'm trying to get to 100 patrons um there's a number of different tiers you can join and you join the Patreon community. $1 to $4, you get a shout-out. $5 and over, you get a shout-out and a location request. Um, if you like the podcast but don't want to join Patreon but want to contribute to it, every little bit helps. Um, it's the PayPal is podcast at gmail.com and leave a rating or review um, if you like the show Spotify also has their new cool community feature as well as their rating feature. So if you use Spotify, which is about 50% of people that listen, um, head there and that would be really good. And I'll wrap up with that clip of Warren Inch speaking and I will be back next week with a whole new episode. Please share Toy Accordingly story because I feel like she has sadly been forgotten by a lot of people and she should not be. She should be talked about. Thanks.
1: In late 2018, 24-year-old Toy accordingly was murdered in broad daylight on a beach just north of Cairns. Local Federal Member of Parliament Warren Edge says the crime traumatised his community.
2: Well, look, it was absolutely horrendous. You know, we see some horrible things happening around the world, but never expected something of, of, this, of this type to happen in our community. The beautiful place where it occurred, and, and of course the, 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 the beautiful young person that uh, was, was a victim of this horrible crime. You know, it, it really put a chill through the whole community and, and makes other women start to feel unsafe. That's the reason why we've got to bring this animal. You know, I I I really should. I think that's an insult to animals because generally you'll find that uh, they're not the same. They don't do the same sort of things as what this character or this creature has done. So, but people, people really don't. Are not going to feel particularly women are not going to feel comfortable until this creature has uh, been brought to justice.
1: Warren, you're obviously um, very close to the community and and presumably to police too. Are you confident that the person of interest that police are seeking is the only suspect in this case?
2: My understanding that's the case. I mean, this individual departed. He lives south of Cairns here, uh, worked in the health industry, disappeared very quickly after the event, uh, abandoned his family uh, to go back to India,
1: Are you confident that if this person of interest is apprehended and uh, extradited to Australia that he will get a fair
0: trial?
2: There's no doubt about it. The, 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 The frenzied and brutal and sadistic attack on this beautiful woman. I think he has to face the full consequences of what's happened here.